With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Affirmative, I read you. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. WBZ, we're Jay talking live mid-9 to 5. We're going to talk about space and such things as SpaceX program, Crew Dragon, Boeing Starliner, a thing called Rocket Lab, the Chandra Telescope, lots about satellites, uh, some about asteroids. Are you ready? Here we have Jonathan McDowell in, who is a return guest, and... He's spectacular. We're very fortunate to have him. He's a superstar astronomer and cosmologist, right? That yes. Uh, well, I don't know about superstar, but I am. I'm an astronomer and cosmologist. So thanks for having me back. Uh, and we Adelaide. spoke uh, the other day with Mr. Spurgle, Professor Spurgle, about uh, things including black holes. You also work on black holes, and this this you we could kind of extend that conversation. You're working on an aspect of the black hole called the quasar. It's part of the thing you do. You're you're a uh, black hole quasar person in one life, and you are a satellite and space program person in, in another life. Yeah, that's right. I was, someone once accused me of having three or four lives, but uh, those are the main two. So what it, when it comes to black holes and quasars, what, what's the relationship and what are you studying? Okay, so we discovered these things called quasars like back in the 60s, which are uh, objects in the centers of galaxies that are putting out ridiculous amounts of energy. And so let me just try and take you through how much energy is coming out. Our sun uses the famous equation E equals mc squared to turn mass into energy. And it turns about, you know, 1% of its mass into energy over 10 billion years. And that's enough to fuel all the sunlight, right? Let all the energy on Earth that we get. And uh, um, so, so that's, a, that's a lot. But a quasar takes like the entire mass of the sun and turns it into energy every year. Wow. And so it's in, it's trillions of times more uh, luminous than the sun. And so what's making all that energy? That, well, that was what was puzzling us. You so think it's a whole new process that we don't understand? It turns out to be a process that we think we do understand okay. now, okay. Uh, which, is, which is called gravitational accretion. Uh, and what it is is that as matter falls into an enormous black hole, the gravity of the black hole. So once the matter falls in the black hole, you can't see it anymore, right? right? Famously, it's black. But on the way in, it gets sort of torn apart by the gravity of the black hole before it falls in and gets really, really hot and, and puts out energy. And it turns out it's a more efficient way of generating energy than nuclear fusion. And what's it called? 
So it's called gravitational, gravitational accretion. accretion. Accretion meaning just like it's it's accreting, it's getting stuff added to it. Mm -hmm. It's getting fat. Like I've been accreting weight over the past couple of years. <laughs> Don't listen to talk about that though. Uh, so yeah, and so it, it turns out that this process, which we see on a much smaller scale in stars in our galaxy, happens in the centers of galaxies. And in the center of almost every galaxy, there is a humongous black hole. Uh, and which is swallowing stuff, and sometimes it's swallowing enough stuff to be bright and makes what we call a quasar. Okay, Does, is there a syncopation to the light, or is it just random, random flashes? It's pretty much well. It's steady for the most part. It changes, you know, um, random. I mean, flashing, you know, every ten million years or something like that. Depending you on know, what gets on sucked a, on into a the... human time scale, it's yeah. it's pretty steady. Uh, it gets a little brighter, a little fainter. Um, and so because there's a steady flow of like, like, you know, water going down the bathtub hole, right? It's it's the stuff. Basically, these black holes are sitting in the middle of the galaxy. And it's, so that's downhill relative to everywhere else in the galaxy. And so if stars put out gas, if there's, if there's stuff floating around in the galaxy, if it, it, it tends to sort of go downhill and it ends up near the black what hole. What makes it downhill? I gotta understand just that. It's, it's the center of the galaxy, and okay. so the center of gravity is okay. right where it's, okay. it happens. Okay. And so the question is, why are these huge black holes right in the middle of almost every galaxy? Because they, why, they made rather it than the on the edge. Well, they were made together, we think. And yeah. so, so we think that part of the process of making a galaxy of billions of stars is that you tend to make a big black hole in the middle. Uh, and that's frankly not really super well understood yet. It's we're starting to kind of what what we've shown is that the black hole grows along with the star formation in the galaxy. Um, that the the bigger the galaxy, the bigger the black hole. So so we're starting to understand some of the process. So what is the black hole eating? It seems like a lot gas, of hydrogen just, gas, just for gas, the most part. Just, yeah, yeah. just sucking I mean, in the hydrogen so, gas. So what will happen is you have what we call a tidal disruption event, a TDE to those in the game, which is when a star gets too close to the black hole and gets ripped apart, and a star is made of gas, right? And so you get a whole bunch of gas that that uh, so you goes get a bump in the light hole. when a star gets and then you get yeah you get a flare you uh, uh, and you can see that happen over several. Uh, weeks or months, uh, and so those are those are being observed pretty regularly now. Okay, now to the other side of what you do, the more kind of the more hardwarey side. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about well SpaceX. I just have a list here. Tell me what's going on with SpaceX, Crew Dragon. Well, I guess start with SpaceX. Right. Well, one of the things that uh, the United States is uh, human spaceflight program has been up to lately is we've been hitching rides with the Russians to get our astronauts into space. Because hmm. uh, we retired the space shuttle. And so the, o the only way that we could get to the space station is by riding on the Russian Soyuz. And that didn't sit right with a lot of people. They wanted an American way to get into space with our astronauts. So are we paying them? So yeah, we're paying the Russians. And of course- We just they're, kind they're of outsourced uh, our rocketry. We, we, we outsourced our getting humans into space 
uh, taxi rides. And, uh, and you know, th th that's not terrible, right? Because, yeah, it it's not cutting edge anymore. The just the ride from Earth to the space station. Boring with them. Or it's Uber, right? Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, so 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 let the Russians do it. But 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 people didn't want that. So um, so we're we're now trying to pay uh, two American companies, SpaceX and Boeing, uh, to build spaceships to take our astronauts to the space station. Um, and they're kind of in a race to be the first ones to have their their spaceships ready. Uh, and they both had setbacks this year uh, with, like, test articles uh, blowing up embarrassingly on test stands and things like that. Uh, but we're now, in the next few months, going to see, hopefully, a, a rush of stuff with first Boeing Starliner have a test launch off the pad to test its emergency escape system. The Crew Dragon will launch on a rocket and then have its emergency escape system tested and then uh by the end of the year maybe the first orbital flights uh without people on board of these spaceships which are capsules a bit like the apollo capsule so they're gonna go up on a rocket and they're gonna come down on parachutes and uh so it's the same basic format as it always has been Rockets. right exactly it, with the exception of the space shuttle Right, and so these are not space shuttle-like spaceships. They are sort of old-style capsule Space spaceships. shuttle never really caught the imagination of the Americans. It was never really super exciting. I think a lot of you know aerospace geeks were very into it, but yes, the public in general, you're right, because it wasn't going anywhere new. And I think that's going to be also the case for these new spaceships. No one cares about the space station. What they want to do is see people back on the moon and Mars. Um and unfortunately, the U.S. program to do that right now is a bit struggling. Uh, so it depends on this big rocket called the Space Launch System that has been delayed and delayed. And I hear a rumor today that it's going to be delayed even more. Uh, it needs a spaceship called Orion, which um, has had one test flight, but it isn't really ready yet. And then you need a vehicle to land on the moon, which... They haven't even put the contract for that well, What's yet. the point of going back to the moon? Well, the... I like it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. But I'd like a, I'm looking for a larger point rather than it's, it's exciting. Right, yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, a lot of people are, are arguing on this sort of idea that Elon Musk keeps pushing of the multiplanetary species, the fact that ultimately our goal should be that humans don't just live on Earth. They live on multiple planets because something bad could happen to Earth. And then we, you know, if that's our only planet, then we've screwed. So, um, and it's a very long-term goal, right? Because it's going to be centuries before there are settlements on other worlds that are that are sustainable. Yeah. Um, but you've got to start somewhere. Uh, so I think for me, that is the justifiable goal. Um, there, so, the, the, you know, the people make other arguments about... Um, uh, you know, maybe you can mine resources. Well, on yeah. The moon is there any manufacturing? Like that. That is is it worthwhile, manufacturing-wise, or making stuff we need in this technological society that we need to make in a gravitation extra gravitational? I I think environment? I think it may well be worthwhile. Yeah. Um. And uh, but it's not clear that you need astronauts to do that. You may be able yeah. to do that with robotic spacecraft. Uh. Um. So so yeah. I think all of this stuff is still playing out. Like, is there a real commercial, profitable thing for us to do? Uh. With people in space, 
and and that's that's still an open question, I think. What about the tether idea? You you got you have a long long rope that goes into space and you just run stuff up the rope. Right, the space elevator. Right. And <clears throat> so to do that, what you need when when you say long, right? We're talking 40,000 miles long. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um because the center the only way this works is if the center of gravity of the elevator is in what's called geostationary orbit, where it orbits around the Earth once a day. Yeah. And so therefore it stays above the same position below. And that's 23,000 miles up. And so you've got to have your uh, your elevator be 23,000 miles high, and then you've got to have the counterweight 23,000 miles further out. So uh, so it's a pretty ridiculously large piece of engineering. Okay. And And my problem with it is if it snaps... Yeah. Then you have the thing wrapped around the Earth like three or four times, and <laughs> the equatorial <laughs> countries are not going to be super happy with the environmental Im uh, assessment. Uh, Look out! Here comes so. a big snake crashing to the ground. <laughs> exactly. So plus, so I, I, I don't it, buy plus, it. Plus, it would only be you can only send one thing up at a time anyway. Too. Um, no, you can probably have multiple cars going up the 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 railway if you have an up and a down okay. string. I need, I need to see a movie about that. And let's switch to satellites. There's a lot to talk about satellites. You do a master satellite report. I do. Uh, since 1989, I've been doing Jonathan Space Report on the internet. The, and the, you can find and, that right now, Jonathan Space Report. Yeah, if you Google that, you'll find me. It's at planet4589.org. And uh, it's I, I go through you know what's been launched this week and uh, what the astronauts have been doing on the space station, things like that. Just trying to be the journal of record because when I was growing up, I was really frustrated that no one was doing that. And so you know, when you want something done right, do it yourself. And... Well, let's go through the satellites, then we'll talk about the conference down in D.C., which is sort of related. Now, what is the range of sizes of satellites? This is Satellite 101. How yeah, big yeah, are they? Yeah. How small are they? Right. So the biggest satellite is the International Space Station, Okay. which is 400 tons, and it's, I don't remember how, you know, like several football fields long or something. Um, so it's an enormous thing. Um, and uh, then, you know, you have a lot of satellites that are a few tons and are maybe um, uh, 90 feet across, something like that, across the solar panel. Wow. Um, and uh, they, particularly the big television satellites in geostationary orbit, because they need a lot of power uh, to beam down uh, those uh, uh, those TV programs. And so, uh, so they have to be quite big. Um, and then, you know, that goes all the way down to... Uh, what we call CubeSats, and some of the CubeSats are the most common kind is is uh, about uh, a few pounds. It's about a foot long. Uh, it's like basically the size of a foot long hot dog. And uh, they do a lot of good work now, these, these smaller satellites. And then there's even something called a Sprite, and that is uh, the invention of uh, a guy called Zach Manchester, a young uh, aerospace scientist who made satellites out of little circuit boards and they're just a few grams and uh they're they're just little circuit cards that you can hold in your hand the not what much do they do the card. not much they they chirp a radio signal and uh um, they were he did it through kickstarter uh he he got a bunch of people to each to buy one of these 
and then he launched a hundred of them, uh, uh, and they re-entered within a few days because they were in a low orbit. So, so they, they don't so really they, do anything. So they, yeah, not yet. But then the first few CubeSats didn't do anything, and okay. now they're, you know, as miniaturization improves, so um, they're, so they're, they're, you know, people are pushing and pushing. How much can you get on a smaller box? Because the thing about space is, it's all about weight. It's very expensive per pound to put something in space and so you want to be able to get the maximum stuff in the smallest weight uh, and uh, that's been a driver throughout the history of the space age how high do they go there are two or three layers well there are a couple of main levels of height that's right so the main you know a lot of satellites are in what we call low earth orbit leo to its friends and Leo is between about a, a couple hundred and a couple thousand miles above the Earth. Uh, and uh, above that, you don't want to have your satellite if you can avoid it because the radiation belts, the Van Allen belts, make uh, uh, da will damage your satellite if it isn't well protected, so that makes it more expensive. Mm -hmm. But then there's a very special orbit 23,000 miles above the Earth. That's this geostationary orbit that we alluded to earlier where it takes exactly 24 hours to go around the Earth. And so you've basically built a television tower 23,000 miles high. Uh, it, it hovers above one spot on the Earth. And so that's a very popular orbit. So most satellites are either in LEO or GEO, the geostationary orbit. Why can't something be in a geostationary orbit at a lower level? I'm trying to picture it in my... Why does it have to be 23,000? Why can't something half that also follow that same ah, point yes. around? That's because, so so there was uh, several centuries ago, a guy called uh, Johannes Kepler, who came up with Kepler's third law, and the first and I second know, two. I should know it, but yeah, I... Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> which, which says basically that how long it takes to orbit something depends on how far away you are from it. And so the further out you are from the Earth, the longer it takes for you to go around. And so if you're very close to the Earth, it takes about an hour and a half to yeah. orbit the Earth. If you're as far away as the moon, it takes, wait for it, a month <laughs> to go around because okay. that's what a month is. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and somewhere in between that, there's got to be a point where it takes exactly a day. Right? Oh, you and, want it to be a day. And you want so it to be a day. So it's in the same place. Right, right, right. That same exactly. So okay. what's happening is, if you go around the equator in a day, and the Earth is turning in a day, okay. then you stay over the same point. And what that means is you can put your satellite dish on your balcony and point it in one direction at this satellite. Okay. And you're turning, and it's turning, but if, as far as you're concerned, it's rock steady still. Uh, uh, so you don't have to have something that's swiveling all the time. Do the satellites have to correct there? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they do a bit because nothing's perfect. Um, so you know, in an ideal world, if the Earth was if the Earth was an ideal world and it was perfectly round and perfectly smooth, uh, then you wouldn't have to. It would it would just orbit. You know, as as Kepler said centuries ago. But the Earth is lumpy. Yeah, and so that and there's also the Moon and the Sun exist, and they tug on the satellites. And so these satellites have to fire their little gas jets about once a month to just like stop, uh, stop drifting off station. Is there some building somewhere where there are all the people firing off the, the gas jets of all the satellites, or does each 
enterprise have their own little control area that controls each one has their own little control area and so sometimes the control center will will uh, be just for one satellite sometimes it'll be for 30 or 40 satellites uh, 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 and you know maybe there's a company that does satellite control that um, the other companies that own the satellites sort of, you know, subcontract to yeah. the, to do the operations. So there's such a thing as like satellite control companies. Absolutely, and and so all, all of these, you know, all kind of you know combinations you can imagine. So uh, so our satellite, the one I work with, Chandra, has a dedicated control center because it's sort of a one of a kind satellite in Burlington. Uh, in Burlington, Mass. And uh, so uh, that's uh, um, you know new state of the art facility that we have. Uh, but then I've seen others where um, you know at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in in Pasadena near LA, they have a control center that controls all of the deep space probes, the Voyagers, and the Mars rovers, and so on. It's got to be cool to visit. That is a cool place. Yes. All right. I've always wondered about the details of satellites, and now we're finding out. We talked a little bit about this before the show. It takes a lot of a lot of energy to get a satellite up into space. Are they working on any new tricky ways to do it so it doesn't use so much energy and it would be cheaper? My idea was like yes, you stick it on a plane and you go as high as you can and then shoot it off from there. Things like that do happen, right? Yeah, so uh, just last week we had the launch of uh, the Pegasus, it was actually the 44th launch of the Pegasus rocket, which does exactly that. You take an L-1011 airliner and you stick a rocket underneath one of its wings, or underneath its belly actually, and they drop the rocket and it fires and, and goes up. And so you don't need a big first stage because the airplane makes the first stage. But that's still, you know, it's very hard to get a big rocket that way. Pegasus is pretty small. Um, so uh, Paul Allen, the Microsoft uh, billionaire, wanted to do a bigger version, and he's made this incredibly huge airplane called Strato Launch that uh, he just got to the point of flying when when uh, he passed away, and the the um, uh, bean counters who now own the company went, yeah, okay, that's not going to turn a so profit. <laughs> huge and weird, like. The Spruce Goose or Howard Hughes kind of It's very much, uh, people have made the comparison with the Spruce Goose. It's very much this, yeah, crazy person spending a lot of money on a ridiculously large plane. How many satellites are up there now? So satellite payloads, things that are actually working, about 2,000. But then there's another 16,000 or so pieces that we're tracking of space junk. And some of those are dead satellites, some of those are rocket stages, and some of those are just things that blew up. Uh, so, so it's kind of crowded up there, uh, and but you know, back in the in the early space age, right uh, in the Apollo days, there were only a few dozen working satellites at any one time, and the number of sat- you know, so it's shot up through one thousand uh, ten years ago to two thousand plus now. Space is becoming much, much more an active place, and a bunch of the uh, uh, corporations and uh, are, are planning to put up what they call mega constellations, which would have tens of thousands of satellites. Uh, Elon Musk from SpaceX has just uh, put in a uh, request to the uh, um, Federal Communications Commission, I think, saying, I, I want to launch 30,000 satellites. How many th- can you launch at once? 
so he has a rocket that can launch 60 at once right now he demonstrated that earlier this year they put up 60 of his wow. uh, prototype so they really did satellites it. They, they they really did it um uh and these are not like the tiny cubesats we were talking about earlier these are these are decent sized satellites um uh so uh, they're like flat panel tvs basically and he stacked them one on top of another uh, oh. and just dispense them like a pack of cards and uh so so we're moving into a new era where um the number of satellites is going to get huge and that's actually a challenge because it's going to um if that really pans out the night sky will look very different you'll if you're uh, certainly out of the city you know hiking you'll see uh where now you see faint stars they'll appear to be crawling across the sky because they'll actually be satellites. Now, nobody's keeping track of these, strangely, except you. And you were going down to a big convention down in D.C., the Astronomy Convention, and you are going to give us a talk on how we should keep track of the satellites. Of the deep space stuff, yeah. So we're actually doing a reasonable job of keeping track of, of the ones in low Earth orbit. Um, but when you get out into deep space, the moon, Mars, there's all this space junk out there now, and there's more and more every year. And it's no one's job to uh, know about it. And so I've been, I'm on a sort of one-person crusade to uh, get people to actually pay attention to this. And so I've been collecting information for, for years on where... Uh, space probes were last seen and, and where they were heading. So I now have a catalog of a thousand pieces of deep space junk that I'm going to present at this uh, the uh, International Astronautical Congress next week and, and try and persuade people that, you know, someone in the world, possibly me, uh, should actually be paid to, uh, to, to pay attention to this because it's just a hole that has, uh, uh, in what's, being, what's happening right now. So you'd be the... Space junk librarian, the space junk uh, exactly the registrar. Registrar, perhaps. right? Yeah. yeah. Why is it important to know? I the chances of running into some space junk physically are pretty slim. Yeah, still. certainly in deep space, but it's not, there are reasons to know where it is. Exactly. So there's a bunch of reasons. Um, one reason is that we actually sometimes these pieces of space junk come back to the Earth and get accidentally discovered as asteroids, and then we have to go, oh, okay, no, that's not an asteroid. It's, it's something artificial. So it'd be nice to be able to uh, do that a little more systematically, not get confused, but uh, accidentally tell the public, oh, there's a killer asteroid coming when actually it's, uh, it's a piece of space junk. Um, also, the space junk could eventually you know, hit the moon or Mars or, or Venus or something. And the, so there's this issue we call planetary protection, which is wanting to make sure that anything that goes to another planet is properly sterilized just in case. We haven't totally ruled out the possibility that there's life on some of these worlds. It's pretty unlikely, but we haven't completely ruled it out. Uh, and so just knowing that we're not sort of unnecessarily upping that risk, having some kind of understanding of, of what's out there is good. Okay. As far as GPS satellites, how accurate will they get in the near future? Like you can do to like four feet now. How how high is the resolution now, and how high will it be in the near future? Right. Well, so they're just launching a new constellation called GPS three. So the one that we've had since the mid nineties is GPS two. Um, and so GPS three has additional signals. Uh, it'll be more reliable, uh, and it'll be a little more accurate, but not dramatically more accurate. 
Um, but I think what we'll see is more and more ubiquitous use of, uh, of, of GPS to do things like, which way am I pointing? You know, if you have one on the front end of your car and one on the back end of your car, right? You can sort of, uh, you know, tell things like that. And, and, uh, and it'll be in every device. And so everything will know where it is and how fast it's going. And, uh, uh, and that will be, of course, <clears throat> fed into all these corporate databases, which will know exactly what we're all up to, which is a bit depressing. <laughs> okay. Let's break and have one more uh, segment with Jonathan McDowell. It's WBZ. Jay talking. We could talk forever. Talk. Talking. We got to talk. Talking. WBZ News Radio 1030. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I know how this sounds, but something me to turn on the radio. A voice on the radio told you to come here. Radio zombies, you're not long. You just have to listen. Bradley J's coming on strong. Jay talking. Bradley J. You're up next. It won't be long. WBZ. Can I talk? Talk to you. You gotta talk with while the hours go. News Radio 1030. We gotta call for the Jay talking show. We gotta Bradley J. Listen to that drum solo. It goes on and on. WBEZ, we're with Jonathan McDowell, astrophysicist, Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and one thing he knows a whole lot about, satellites. And I guess we, we pretty much finished satellites, and we don't have much time, so let's t- talk about the Chandra Telescope, which you are very much involved in. Yes, I'm part of the the Chandra Telescope team. Uh, there's a whole bunch of us here in in, in Cambridge uh, who are involved in in Chandra, the Mission Control Center. You said it's in in Burlington, and uh, Chandra is an X-ray telescope, and what that means is it sees X-rays from space. Uh, violent events. Whenever you get stuff that's a million degrees hot or just something extreme like matter being torn apart as it falls into black holes like we were talking about earlier, that generates X-rays. And these X-rays can go across you know, a billion light years of space, and then in the last fraction of a second, they get stopped by the Earth's atmosphere, which is sort of good for us because you don't want you know to be being X-rayed all the time. Right. Um, but it's annoying for X-ray astronomers. So we put our telescope just above the atmosphere, 
and that lets us see this stuff that's that's coming to us, flowing in from from all directions in the sky, uh, and and lets us get another view of the universe. So you know, Hubble sees ordinary light. We have infrared telescopes. We we're talking about the James Webb earlier that see infrared light, which sort of sees cold things and star birth. And Chandra sees hot things. We see star death. We see violent supernova explosions. We see black holes. So what is all this attempting to, what is the big picture things we're trying to learn from all these different programs, satellites and, and telescopes? What are we really trying to find out? Right. Well, so day? certainly on the astronomy side, what we're trying to find out is our place in the universe. And one of the big you know, discoveries of the last century was that you and I and everyone else are made of stardust, right? That very literal statement that uh, every atom in your body went through the middle of a star, and the stars are ovens that make the different elements. And so the reason why carbon is common and gold is rare comes down to nuclear reaction rates in stars. And, and so that really connects us to the universe. Um, understanding sort of black holes and things like that, we've understood that they actually affect the evolution of the galaxy. Um, they therefore could have affected the evolution of, of the Earth. Um, and we know, you know, looking at, for example, asteroids and stuff like that, right? We know asteroid killed, asteroid killed the dinosaurs. Uh, and so there's all kinds of, so part of it, right, is finding new and horrible ways for us all to die. Uh, but, uh, but it's also where we come from. Uh, um, one of the big questions in astronomy right now is, is there life elsewhere in the galaxy? Mm -hmm. Uh, and what kind of life will it be? And so that's something we've, you know, we're making real progress on, I think. We found all these other planets going around to the stars. So I think that's exciting. In some ways, the same curiosity that everyone understands about finding your genetic makeup and where you come from, that same quality of curiosity would, should make you interested in, in cosmology because in the bigger picture, you want to find out where right. you Where did we from. all come from? That's exactly right. That's what got me into this is where, where did we all come from and where are we going? All right, tell the folks, folks, listen to this. Hey, did, did you know where the moon came from? Uh -huh. That's kind of freaked me out. Tell them where the moon came from. So one of the things that the Apollo missions discovered is that, yeah, the, the moon came from a cosmic collision between the Earth and some other unnamed world that smashed into the Earth and cracked it open. And for a while, we think the Earth was surrounded by kind of like a Saturn's ring on fire of molten rock and stuff uh, that slowly coalesced into this new mini world, the moon. Interesting uh, that, that only made one moon, right? Isn't that right. kind of interesting in, instead of... I don't know, a thousand really small moons. Right. Um, and I haven't looked at the paper that does the simulation. There's someone who's done a simulation that shows how that happens. That, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you shouldn't be surprised it happens because this. But I don't, I, right. I don't have the this for you. How big was the thing that, how big did the thing have to be to hit, that hit the Earth to make that happen? We think it was probably about the size of Mars. So this you'll you'll enjoy that this is known in the in the uh, business as the big splat theory okay. of of lunar formation. Okay. So what happened to the thing that hit us? Well, it's was, part, I mean it's wait, part of the moon that, and part of the Earth. It all it, yeah, but the, the thing that hit us. 
was way bigger than we are. It must have survived. Well, not bigger than we are. Uh, I mean, it's smaller. Mars is small. It's smaller All than right. we are. So it's kind of mixed in. And so the whole surface of the Earth would have been molten at this point. Okay, right? so that whatever right. hit us just disintegrated. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay. And you mentioned that if, prior, that if something was big enough, it doesn't just crack the Earth or cause, cause trauma. It actually melts everything. It melts everything, yeah. So this this happened before the uh, evolution of life. So, uh, but if it happened again now, yeah, it would like wipe everything out because the get, whole surface of the Earth. Would, and we would have been hit by asteroids time and time again, correct? That's great. Smaller things have hit us. You know, in the early uh, history of the solar system, billions of years ago, the solar system was full of these rocks flying around and kept hitting things. And now the planets have mostly soaked them up, but there's still a few left. Um, and so one of the last few of those, you know, the, the, uh, was the one that, uh, hit us 65 million years ago, which is very recent. Is that down in Me Mexico? Uh, that's down in Mexico, the Chicxulub, or however you pronounce it, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, in the Yucatan. So uh, an event like that would kill everything, correct? Well, not everything on Earth, no, because okay. um, uh, life survived, but it would, uh, it, it, uh, it set the whole of North America afire, and, um, it would, uh, cause crop failures across the world for for many years and cause certainly make many species go extinct let's talk to howie in brookline howie what's going on hey hello gentlemen um it's kind of interesting uh cbs uh 60 minutes did a story a couple of years ago i guess the military space command is worried about uh, something and uh, a, a momentous task in making sure that enemy states like China and Russia don't launch, launch what they call these killer satellites, which are designed to uh, take out That's our right. GPS satellites and also communications. Uh, could you talk about that? Sure. So, so the first killer satellite was uh, back in 1968. Uh, the Russians... Uh, took out one of their own satellites just as a weapons test. And they still happen now and again. The Indians took out one of their own satellites back in January and created a bunch of space debris. Um, so, so it's a real concern. Uh, and, uh, you know, the it's actually illegal to use nuclear weapons in space, but it's not illegal to use other kinds of weapons in space, it turns out. We haven't got a treaty on that, and so maybe someday we'll manage to get a treaty banning these weapons. But uh, how could we not? I would be surprised if we really didn't have a satellite with laser capability or something like that. How could we not? Well, you know, we spent a lot of money in the '80s on these sort of designs for laser satellites, and it turned out to be really hard and not very uh, effective. And so, so instead, the, the better way to do it, right? It turns yeah. out because satellites are going at eighteen thousand miles an hour. So all you really need is to have another satellite going at 18,000 miles an hour in a different direction. Yeah. And you're going to have, you know, a bad situation. So uh, um, so that's a lot cheaper than, than a mega laser. Uh, one other, one other uh, item I'd like to cover. Okay. I think, I think uh, NOVA, the science program on Channel 2, did a story a while back. And I think, was it 1908, a space rock hit a pot of Russia? That's right, the Tunguska and, uh, event. Uh, and, you know, that's a really wild thing. It's the biggest, um, it, it, we actually think it was a bit of a comet uh, that blew up in the air over Siberia. Blew down all the trees, right? Blew down all the trees. And the, here's the really freaky thing. If it had come in 
three hours later and the Earth had rotated three hours more, it would have hit what was about to become Leningrad. <laughs> and uh, that would have changed the history of the 20th century quite a bit. Yeah, we know a lot more about it if that had happened. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, that stuff like that can happen, right? Um, and, uh, and so that's one of the biggest events uh, in the past couple centuries. But, uh, you, know, you know, there was another one in Russia a few years ago, the Chelyabinsk event that was much smaller but still was, you know, the, the explosive energy of a small nuclear bomb and shattered windows all, all around Chelyabinsk. If you see the YouTube videos of that, it's pretty cool. Howie, great call. Thank you. So what are the likelihood what is the likelihood that we'd be hit by a significant asteroid? Do we have them all mapped or can they sneak up on us? Right. We've been working really hard over the past sort of 10, 20 years to map out the ones that might actually hit us. And uh, and so now I think we're we're sort of probably like ninety percent complete. Um, it's 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 uh, we're getting there, uh, but we still the the real worry for me is comets because comets come falling in from the outer solar system on big like hundred thousand year orbits. You're not going to have seen them before, and so you might have just a few months warning. Uh, whereas the asteroids, with a little more work, we can kind of nail them all and 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 have good advance warning. So um, yeah, it. it it's going to happen someday. I, I, I don't want to oversell it. It's, it's not the biggest worry I would have, you know, but, uh, but I think uh, uh, in the long run, uh, I wouldn't be surprised in the next couple of centuries if we lose a city to one. Mm -hmm. so it's much less likely to have one that's big enough to be like a dinosaur killer kind of thing that would risk extinction. Jonathan McDowell, you are spectacularly interesting. You're great on the radio, a fantastic guest. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Dad, Bradley. Thanks for thanks for coming in late. I know that's the the, the main problem with me, the late the lateness. And thanks for overcoming that. Jonathan McDowell, astrophysicist at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and friend of Jay talking. Thanks again. It's WBZ. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.